Yeah, so go ahead and turn to Matthew chapter 6 if you like. We'll be looking at some verses in that chapter pretty soon. But most of you know, and we haven't talked about it a whole lot yet today, that it's Palm Sunday. And Palm Sunday is the beginning of what we sometimes refer to as Holy Week. It is the week that leads up to Jesus' crucifixion and and resurrection. And it was that week uh, that he came into town uh, on that Sunday before the first Easter. He came into Jerusalem riding on a donkey. And when he came into town, he was welcomed by a throng of excited people, many of whom had been traveling along with him on the road. And he was worshipped by them because they believed that he was their Messiah, that he was the long-awaited King of Israel who would come and deliver them from oppression and would be their Savior. And they were right, because that's exactly who he was, even though the way he did it didn't necessarily look like they thought it would look. And yet there were some people in Jerusalem that day who did not welcome Jesus. In fact, very much the opposite. They were extremely offended by this display from the crowd, and they rebuked the crowd, and when Jesus got into town, they basically verbally assaulted him. And the observation I want to make today, about that at least, is this, that the people who were least likely to welcome Jesus, the people who were least likely to welcome him as their king, happened to be the people who, by reputation, were the most religious people in town. Think about that for a second. The people most likely to reject Christ, the people most likely to reject God literally riding into town to save the day for whom they had supposedly been waiting for thousands of years, the people most likely to reject God in that way were the people who, by virtue of their religiosity, were supposed to be the people who were closest to God and you would have thought would have been most likely to welcome Him, but it didn't turn out that way. I want to talk with you today about something I'm going to call kingdom religion. Kingdom religion. Now, when you hear that word religion, uh, I know that it leaves a bad taste in the mouths of some of you because when you hear the word religion, you think of that as being something that doesn't have a whole lot to do with authentic Christianity. In fact, some of you probably think, when you hear the word religion, you think of that as the opposite of authentic Christianity, because you may have heard it said, and, and, and defined a certain way, you're, you're thinking right, because you may have heard it said that religion is man reaching up to God and trying to save himself, whereas Christianity is God reaching down to man and saving us because we couldn't save ourselves. And that's very true. So if that's the way you understand the word religion, then you're right, because if that's the case, then religion is a big problem. But there's another way to define religion that perhaps isn't so negative for us. Webster simply defines it as a couple different definitions I found. A personal set or institutionalized system of religious attitudes, beliefs, and practices, or a cause, principle, or system of beliefs held to with ardor and faith. I kind of like that one a little bit better. A a cause, principle, or system of beliefs held to with ardor and faith. And by this definition, if you think about it, everyone's religious. Everyone in the world. Even atheists are religious. Do they have a system of beliefs? Does it require faith for them to hold on to that system of beliefs? Are many of them very passionate about it? Yes. Everyone's religious. And yes, even Christians are religious because we too hold to a set of beliefs. And hopefully we have a pretty good amount of faith, and hopefully we have some passion 
about holding those beliefs. And hopefully they have some kind of an impact on our attitude and how we live our lives. And it's not wrong. It's not wrong to have certain habits, certain disciplines, certain practices. The cool way to say it today is certain rhythms, you know, even routines that we undertake as part of our worship of God. Now, I'm, I'm going to read you some verses now from Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. We've been looking at this sermon, thinking about how God's kingdom is God's rule over God's people in God's place. And this sermon is kind of our constitution as God's people and how he brings his, his rule to bear on our lives and what it looks like. And in the verses that, that I'm going to read, Jesus is going to comment on the three central religious activities, the three marks of devotion to God that were practiced by the Jewish people of his day. And you're gonna notice that Jesus does not tell people not to do them. He doesn't criticize these practices themselves. In fact, he clearly assumes that his disciples, his followers, are going to do these religious things. Rather, what he's doing is he's commenting on the way that they are to be practiced. So Matthew chapter six, starting right in verse one, Jesus says this. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, You must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Skip over, please, to verse 16. And when you fast... Do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Now, please do not freak out that we just skipped the Lord's Prayer and the verses around it, okay? We will double back and pick those up later. We cannot possibly do them justice today. I want to look today more generally at these three religious acts of devotion that Jesus comments on. But before we look at his specific comments, I just want to take note of what these three things are. The three marks of piety, the three marks of religious devotion for God's people were giving to the poor, prayer, and fasting. Giving to the poor, prayer and fasting. Do you find that at all surprising at any of those things? You might. You might. You, you probably weren't surprised by the inclusion of prayer because that's an obvious one, right? But have you ever thought of giving to the poor as a central part of your relationship with God? That, that you'd actually include it alongside fasting and prayer? I mean, you might be surprised at how often the Bible connects giving to the poor, which is something we might think of as part of a horizontal relationship with people, to the vertical relationship that we have with God. In fact, in the Bible, an encounter with the poor is very often an encounter with God himself. An encounter with the poor is very often presented in the Bible as an encounter with God. Because God identifies with the poor. 
Proverbs 19, 17 says this, he who gives to the poor lends to the Lord. Jesus says in Matthew 25, when his followers see someone hungry or thirsty or naked and meet that person's need, they're actually giving to Jesus himself. One time, shortly before Jesus' death, he was at the home of Martha and Mary and Lazarus, and Lazarus' sister Mary, she broke a, a vial of very expensive perfume and poured it on Jesus. And at least one of his disciples said to her, hey, this perfume could have been sold and the money could have been given to the poor. But Jesus at that time said, don't rebuke her. He said, the poor you will always have with you, but you will not always have me with you. I want you to think about that for a second. Do do you realize there's probably a really strong parallel there? That, That the love that we may want to pour out on Jesus directly today, but we can't because he's not physically with us, that that love can be directed toward the poor in his place. In Galatians, Paul is trying to identify the very basics of the Christian faith for these Gentile Christians, and he mentions one thing that he and Peter and Barnabas did not want them to forget was to remember the poor. It's one of the basics of the Christian life, so that it shows up even in Galatians, which is all about getting rid of everything you don't need and just hanging on to the basics, the main thing. Jesus says that it's the main thing. What if religion, true religion, good religion, involves getting closer to the heart of God? What does it say about God's heart that compassion for the poor is so central to the life of the people who please him? His heart is for the poor. So I think all of us need to step back and see if that that part of God's heart has actually invaded our hearts. Is this part of your relationship with God because it's actually pretty central? Now the other element that may have surprised you a little bit was fasting. Um, You probably know what that is, but not all of us are terribly familiar with the practice, and frankly, a lot of us are not very excited about trying it, right? Fasting was a very common practice, usually in conjunction with prayer, and as Al Bosenberg reminded us a couple of months ago, it is still a very valid activity for Christians today, whether it means going a day without food, whether it means skipping a meal, maybe it means going for some extended period of time, not enjoying something that you would normally enjoy, but giving that thing up for a period. There's different kinds of fasting, different ways you can do it. I often think of fasting as raising my voice when I'm talking to God. Raising my voice to God. Fasting is a sign of seriousness in prayer, even desperation. It shows God that we are extremely invested in that which we are pleading for him to do. In the book of Esther, when Queen Esther was planning to go before the king of Persia, she was going to walk into that throne room, and pretty much the existence of the Jewish people was on the line at that moment. What the people did was they knew she was going in there, and they declared a fast. In fact, it's interesting, it doesn't even mention prayer there, really. It just mentions fasting because they realized what a critical moment that was for them. Fasting can also remind you to pray for something, by the way. You probably realize how, right? Like when I'm fasting for something, and I haven't eaten in a while, and my stomach makes that noise, like, dude, what are you doing to me, right? Then I know I'm reminded of that thing that I was praying for, and I lift it up to God. Fasting, we don't think about it so much this way today, but it still is. Fasting is also a sign of repentance and contrition, meaning you're showing God that you are sorry for your sin and you take that sin very seriously. And you may not think about it that way, like maybe we don't do it for that reason today, but we do. Let me just explain to you how I think of that. 
if you think about it, fasting is kind of like the opposite of celebration, right? Like there's feasting and there's fasting. So what do sin and celebration have in common in God's eyes? That's a bad combination, right? Confession of sin and celebrating usually don't inhabit the same part of the program. And so to, to, to show God and remind yourself that this sin is a very serious thing, what you can do is the opposite of celebrating. You can kind of have an anti-celebration, and for a time you deny yourself an enjoyment that you would otherwise have. Now, this is not a way to earn forgiveness from God. It is not a way to punish yourself for your sins so that God won't punish you. That's the wrong way to think about it. It's a way to train your heart to seek renewed fellowship with God by learning to love what He loves and to hate what He hates because He hates sin. Okay. Now, we found out what these three things are, kind of how they fit in, but let's, let's look at the passage itself now and see if there's a common element in Jesus' discussion of these three practices. Prayer, fasting, and giving to the poor. It's not too hard to figure out here that Jesus is talking about motive, right? He's talking about the reasons that we do the things that we do. And you might ask the question, why is motive so important? Why is Jesus so concerned about the internals? Why is he so concerned about what's going on in my heart? Isn't it it right to do the the right thing even for the wrong reason sometimes? Wouldn't that be better than not doing it at all? Well, when it comes to motive, uh, there's an illustration that I like to use that is going to hit home for some of you maybe, but there is an action that I perform on a a regular basis. In fact, this is something that I do pretty much at the exact same time every year. What I do is I give my wife a bouquet of flowers on our anniversary. Now, after 31 years, this does not surprise her. It is like, wow, flowers. At the same time, she has informed me that she doesn't complain about this practice because she has informed me many times that all women love flowers. Now, you may be hearing you're a woman and you don't love flowers. I don't know if you really don't or not. You probably do, kind of maybe in there somewhere. Maybe you don't. If you don't love flowers, um, I'm not married to you, so I don't care. But, <laughs> but, but if, if, if we were, if we were to, to kind of get into this topic of motive, what if Dawn came up to me and said, Paul, why did you buy me these flowers? Okay, now I've got to say something, right? And I've got several different options for my response. I could say, well, I got you these flowers because I don't want to sleep on the couch tonight. I mean, a guy's got to stay out of the doghouse, right? Or I could say, well, I'm just doing my duty as a good husband. What kind of, of passable husband doesn't remember his anniversary? Or I could even say, well, I, I was hoping you'd put a picture of those flowers on Facebook so everyone else could see what a good husband I am, right? On the other hand, what if I said something like this? What if I said, honey, I just couldn't help myself. I mean, I know that it's been 31 years, but even after all this time, nothing makes me happier than to make you happy and to, to see the face of the woman that I love light up with joy. Okay. She was in the first service, but kind of wanted to run out during that part. (laughs) Which is better, do you think? I mean, is there not a difference between cold duty and warm relationship? Is there not a difference between doing something as part of a loving relationship and then doing it to get points with somebody or to impress somebody or to feel better about yourself? Obviously there is. And that's true in our relationship with God as well. In the time we have left, what I want to do is call your attention to just three words. 
These three words appear in each section. And the first word you're going to find out is, the, is by far the most important one because it forms the basis for how we understand the other two words. The words are Father, Secret, and Reward. Father, Secret, and Reward. All, Jesus says your Father who sees in secret will reward you. All three of these appear at the end of each section, and all of them have to do with kingdom religion being part of a relationship, not just something we do to fulfill an obligation, not just something we do to keep out of God's doghouse or, or to, to make ourselves look good for ourselves or somebody else. Now, the first of the three words, Father, is easily the most radical and unexpected of those three. Notice that Jesus was not saying, my Father. Look at what he says. He says, your Father. He's talking to his followers, to his disciples, and he said, God is your father. Now, we'll talk in a minute about why he could say that, but back then, what would happen is when really, really religious people would, would pray to God, what they would do is they would kind of stack up titles and names for God. So they'd start their prayer like, oh, great and holy, all-powerful ruler of the universe, glorious king of Israel, Lord of all creation, and they'd go on for a while, which is not really wrong per se, but imagine the scandalous familiarity and just the presumption of, of some smelly Galilean fisherman thinking that he can just call God Father. Because that's a term of intimate relationship. Jesus even used the word Abba at times, which, which is even more familiar. It can carry the idea of Daddy. It's been said that, that the key word for understanding the entire Old Testament is the word Holy but that the key word for understanding the entire New Testament is the word Father. Now, why would that be the case? What has changed? Has God become less holy? Certainly not, but, but something has happened to make God more approachable, even though He is no less awesome and holy and intimidating. You see, God, God the Father had only one natural Son, only one begotten Son. And the love that God shared with His Son was the strongest force in the entire universe. It's what held everything together. But for one horrible moment about 2,000 years ago, as the Son was hanging on a cross, choking and gasping for life, covered with the sins of the world, the Father actually turned His back on His Son. In doing this, he pronounced judgment on all of our sin, and he dealt with it finally and completely through the suffering and the death of Jesus. And as a result, not just Peter and John and Andrew and Matthew and those guys, but you and I can be accepted into God's presence and, and be his very children. We can call him Father. That's who he is. Now, I'm going to say there's three kinds of people in this room today, and I want to speak to each kinds of person each kind of person in turn here. Some of you, first of all, may not know God as Father because you've never surrendered your life to Him. You've never asked Him to take away your sin by the virtue of Christ's death on the cross in your place. You've never received that gift of new life so that from now on you, you're going to live not for yourself but for the one who died and rose again for you. I didn't realize this, but in the earliest church, non-Christians were, were definitely invited to come into the worship service just like they are today. And I knew that, that, that they were forbidden from taking communion with the church. What I didn't know was that they were also often forbidden from reciting the Lord's Prayer with the church. 
You know why? How does it start? Our Father. And He wasn't their Father. Now that sounds kind of mean, sounds kind of exclusive, but it's technically correct. God may not be your Father this morning, even though you're in this room. Now the good news is, He is willing to adopt you, even today, even this very moment, if you surrender to His love which he gave you for free on that cross of Jesus Christ when he died in your place. Now the second kind of person who's here is already a believer in Jesus, but you have trouble calling God Father. And that may happen because of some issues with your earthly father. It may happen, you may not have the, the courage, to, you can't muster up the courage to call God Father or it feels strange when it comes out. Maybe because you feel like you're being too familiar with him or you have such a respect for his holiness or maybe you have a lot of shame over your own sinfulness. Have you forgotten how deep the love of God is? Have you forgotten how deep the love of God is for you? He went all the way, even beyond forgiving your sin, to erasing it forever. And then he didn't have to do this, but he adopted you into his very own family. He made you a member of his household so that you don't need to knock before you come in the door. You just go in. You can call him Father. Now the third kind of person who's here today is maybe someone who doesn't have any trouble at all calling God Father. You're used to that, but, but you've somehow lost track of how incredible this privilege is because you've lost your appreciation for his holiness, his majesty, his lordship. The fact that this person whom you are privileged to call father dwells in unapproachable light and that he not only created every star in the universe, but he calls them each by name. That's your father. So brothers and sisters, in enjoying this intimacy we have with our Father God, let's not lose sight ever of who He is. Because that would rob the Word of its impact. So when you pray, or when you fast, or when you give to the poor, or, or when you do anything that you might even do in the service of this local church, whatever it is that you're involved in, try to keep in mind that you're not doing it for a score. You're not doing it for the pastor. Or you're not doing it to gain a reputation with your church family. You're not doing it to feel good about yourself or to make up for something. It's all about the relationship. It's all about you and God. You are doing it for Him. You are doing it with Him. He is your Father. I used to have trouble asking people to do things at church because I don't like to inconvenience people or, or, or make them feel guilty or whatever, so I had trouble asking people to do things. And then I read something, I can't remember where I read it, but it said, you know, these people will do stuff for Jesus they'll never do for you. And it was right. Your relationship with God is what determines what you do for Him, not anything else. He's your Father. The second word is Secret. Secret. Now today, it's not as much of a temptation as it was maybe for those people in Jesus' time. Not, not much of a temptation for us to, you know, show off our religion in public, right? Because we live in a pretty secular place, and if we do show off our religiosity in public, people think we're obnoxious and, and ridiculous, so we don't do that very much. In fact, the only, the only time we really feel the need to show off how religious we are is when we're around other Christians, right? And it's always a subtle temptation to wonder, you know, who's watching when we're with God. 
But even more of a subtle thing than doing it to impress other people is doing it merely to feel better about yourself. And that's why Jesus, when he's talking about giving to the poor, that's why he says, look, don't even worry about other people. Don't even let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Why? Because he knows that we have a tendency when we obey him and do something like that to congratulate ourselves for it. But he says, don't even do it in front of yourself. He wants you to be free from that because it's not about you. Now, I need to say something here. It's important because it's, it's very possible to badly misinterpret this passage and to think that what Jesus is saying here is that we are to keep our faith totally private and totally personal and that every single thing we do as a Christian should just be between us and God. That is a trap that a lot of, of people would love to see Christians fall into because they'd rather we stop talking about this Jesus character and making them feel uncomfortable. Jesus himself said earlier in, in chapter 5 that our good works are supposed to shine. They're not supposed to be like light hidden under a basket. Furthermore, the whole New Testament makes it really clear that the Christian life needs to be lived out in a community of believers, not just in our own hearts and minds and lives. And sometimes we do end up getting seen by others when we pray. Sometimes people do end up seeing what we're doing, maybe even when we're giving to the poor. And it's not always a bad thing. I mean, sometimes if you're, maybe you're teaching your kids about this and you're being an example for them. Maybe you're mentoring another believer and you feel led by God to talk about your devotional life or talk about maybe even how you give to the needy or whatever it might be. That's okay, that's not wrong. What Jesus says what's wrong is is when our motives are to impress other people or merely to feel good about ourselves. Now, a lot of you are afraid to pray in public. Okay, I was gonna ask for a show of hands. Who's afraid to pray in public? But the people who are afraid to pray in public wouldn't raise their hand anyway probably, so, so that would be self-defeating. But I get it, okay? I, I, I was afraid to pray in public until college. I can still remember pretty clearly the first time I ever opened my mouth and said a prayer out loud voluntarily in a, an intervarsity meeting with like, you know, a hundred other college students there when I was, I think, a freshman in college. And I, I was terrified. I understand. But, but here's a question that, that uh, I want you to ask, just between you and the Lord, okay? Are you afraid to pray in public because you're afraid that you might lose track of God's presence and turn it into some kind of a performance? Because if that's what it is, that's actually a good fear, okay, because that can happen. On the other hand, are you afraid to pray in front of other people because you don't want them to think that you're unspiritual when they hear your like totally lame prayer? That's not a good fear. What is prayer? like talking with God, right? It's talking with your Father. That's all it is. And it doesn't have to sound all eloquent. In fact, most of the time, it shouldn't. Now, some of you here are very confident praying in front of others. You've been doing it for a long time, and you have no problem with it. So if you are confident, if you don't mind you know, praying in front of other people, let me ask you a question too, all right? Just to be fair. How important is it that after you pray, somebody says, yes, God, or amen, or gives you some kind of grunt of approval that what you're saying was the right thing. How important is that? What if instead it's total silence? Is that okay? It should be perfectly okay if you're really talking to your Father. And if you find out that your prayer life when you're praying with other Christians is actually stronger and more vibrant than your prayer life when you're alone with God, then it's probably worthwhile to take inventory of your prayer life and try to figure out why is it harder for me to pray alone? Just a thought. 
Now, the last word is a strange one. Reward. Reward. When your Father in heaven sees what is done in secret, he will reward you. And by the way, some of you in your translations have the word openly at the end of this phrase, but that word is not in the most reliable Greek manuscripts of the New Testament. So the reward from God, whatever it is, does not necessarily have to be something that others can see. It may happen and nobody sees it. The more important thing to realize is that when you pray, when you fast, when you give, even though nobody else might ever find out, God knows. God sees what you're doing as well as seeing your heart, and he will even reward you. But you might say, what does that mean that God will reward me? What does that mean? I mean, well, there's one really obvious answer you think of first, right? He answers the prayer. Right? Or he, 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 he grants us the request that we've been fasting for. Or maybe even rewarding us financially for our generosity to the poor. After all, that whole verse in Proverbs, I didn't read the whole verse, it really says this, He who is generous to the poor lends to the Lord, and he will repay him for his deed. And that is definitely a principle. That's definitely one possibility of what Jesus is talking about here as a reward. But let's take it a little bit deeper because Jesus contrasts this reward very specifically with the reward that is received by the hypocrites. And he says, when they do what they're doing out there to impress men, they already have the reward. What was their reward? What were they looking for? They were looking for applause from people. They were looking for the approval of others. So maybe it makes sense that when Jesus is talking about the reward that his followers get for serving in the right way, praying in the right way, that what they will get is approval from God. Approval from God, that God is being pleased by you and he will find some way to show you approval, whether or not this means a direct financial blessing, whether or not it means a direct answer to your specific request in your immediate prayer. But to take it maybe just one level deeper, I really think we can understand this word reward a lot more accurately if we go back and relate it to that first word. Remember that, father? Think about it. If you're a father, even if you're a mom, grandmother, grandfather, aunt, uncle, whatever, but but think about a good father. How does a good father reward his children? How do you reward your your kids when you want the absolute best for them as God certainly does for us? So when you see them behaving in ways that please you, when you see them reflecting their love and respect for you, when you see them even growing into maturity as, as, as more mature human beings, how do you reward them? Do you give them their requests? Probably most of the time, yeah. But don't you want to do even more for them? Do you ever give them more freedom? Do you give them more privileges? Do you give them more responsibility? Do you share with them information that you've never shared with them before, but now they can be trusted with it because they've shown they can do the right thing? Do you take them under your wing in some new way and and give them more of a role in the family? Do you tell them that you're proud of them? Do you tell them that they're a credit to your family name? Do you share your own heart with them a little bit more and let them in on more of your plans? Do you encourage them and challenge them in new ways? These are all different things you might think of, but what does it mean to reward your children for acting in a way when it really pleases you? Not just to make them more happy, but in a way to make them more whole. Now, if you want to give these kinds of things to your children, how much more do you think your perfect Father in heaven 
wants to give these things and then even better things that you haven't even thought of yet to you both in this life and in the next life. When we reach out to him in the context of a loving relationship in prayer and fasting and in trying to share his heart for the poor. Do you see how this is so much different than the way people usually think about religion? But if there is such a thing as as kingdom religion, I think this is it. I think this is what it looks like. It's like kids trying to learn the heart of their father and then trying to please him so that they become more like him and, and grow up into maturity in his family. On that first Palm Sunday, when, when Jesus finally got to the, to the main part of Jerusalem and he got to the Temple Mount, he looked around the temple area, which is the place that people were supposed to go to meet with God. It's where that altar was we talked about this morning in worship. But when he walked around the temple, he saw that it was full of obstacles. There were money changers. There were animals running around. There were, there were hordes of people buying and selling and there were religious leaders standing by just making money off the whole thing. But it was supposed to be a house of prayer for all nations. It was supposed to be a place where people could go and really meet with God. And so it was kind of late that day and Jesus didn't have the time to do what he wanted to do. But the next thing, when he came into town, first thing he did was he went to that temple and he cleared out that mess. Because Jesus hates anything that keeps people from really connecting with God, and religion cannot be one of those things. Ultimately, it was, it was Jesus himself who cleared the way for us to approach God, right? He did it by dying in our place and canceling our debt of sin so that we can now approach the Father without hesitation and without shame. And we can even call him that Father Because for those of us who are in Christ, the Holy Spirit has processed our adoption papers into God's family. He's our daddy. He's our father. So when you meet with God in prayer, in fasting, even in giving to the poor, seek to grow closer to your father. Do what what the Old Testament sometimes calls seeking his face meaning not just for what you can get from him, but seek the relationship, seek to know him better, seek to connect with him. This is actually what we're going to be doing um, tonight in this prayer and worship time we're having in the Welcome Center. Psalm 27.8 says this, talking to God, My heart says of you, seek his face. Your face, Lord, I will seek. I think it's even better actually in the New Living Translation. I'll close with this. It says it this way. My heart has heard you say, Come and talk with me. And my heart responds, Lord, I'm coming. 